This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. So I want to start off by asking you a question. Is this church going to be here in 20 years? And I bet everybody here is probably thinking, well, of course it's going to be here in 20 years. How do you know? Let me ask you another question. Where are you going to be in 20 years? Where are you going to be in 10 years? What about five years? How about two? You see, the end, I don't know. I don't either. And that's kind of the point. Have you even thought about the next two years, the next five years, the next ten years? I've, I've seen a plan out on your board. I know y'all have got plans. I'll tell you, sometimes people don't worry about those things. They just live in the moment, live in the here, live in the now. They don't really think about where we're going. And the truth is, if you don't think about where you're going, this is where you'll go. Nowhere. The reality is, some of us will not be alive in ten years. Some of us may not be alive in two years. And the reality is this. If the Lord doesn't will, Garland, Dukes, and David Zebok won't be alive in 10 years. We don't know. I'll tell you what we do know is this church needs leadership. It needs good leadership. It needs qualified leadership. It needs men that are trained to do the work of shepherds and elders and deacons. That's what it needs. I want to start in Judges chapter 2 this morning. Judges 2, Judges 2 verse 7, it says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the mountains of Ephraim on the, on the north side of Mount Gaish. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them which did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, I wanted to read this for, for a reason. Moses was a great leader of God's people. You remember reading about Moses as he led them out of Egypt and he, he led them through the wilderness. He was a great leader of God's people. And he, he had an apprentice, if you will, in Joshua. And Joshua followed around Moses. He learned from Moses. Moses spoke to Joshua about leadership at times. And Joshua was a great leader of God's people. And when Joshua died, there were some elders that were left over. And they were good leaders of God's people. But in one generation... In one generation, they went from having good leadership to people worshiping Baal. I want you to really think about that. How quickly things can change in one generation. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. They went from having good leadership to having no leadership. You know what you read all throughout the book of Judges? In those days, there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. They ruled themselves. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we need leadership. You need to be led. 
I need to be led. We need leaders. And when Israel didn't have leaders, what they do? They live like the world. God's people look like the world. They serve the world. They worship the world. In one generation. You know what I hear? Well, that'll never happen to us. I'm going to tell you, if, if a church says that will never happen to us, they're going to close their doors. That's what's going to happen. If they look out in the future and they say, we don't have to worry about it, nothing's going to happen to us, you will close your doors. That's what will happen. Your light will be snuffed out. Because ultimately, if we don't look to the future, we don't equip the future, there will be no future. That's the reality. The Bible tells us this in Proverbs 15, 22. Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. I want to walk you all through some things this morning. This may be a little bit different. But, you know, we've, we, y'all have gone through some, something like this before. You've gone through some processes where men have come in and, and, and interviewed or whatever you want to say. Uh, the congregation about leadership and I don't want anybody to leave here this morning not knowing what's going to happen when Jim and I get here, Lord willing, and we begin this work. I want you to have a clear understanding of what to expect. And This word counsel here means a session or a company or persons in deliberation. It's a consultation. That's essentially what Jim and I are being called in here to do. We're going to come in. We're going to take an assessment. We're going to ask you some questions. We're going to collect some information. We're going to consult with the elders. What we want to do is have a council with each one of you in your homes. We want to sit down and ask you how the church is doing. We want to ask you about the current leadership. We, we want to ask you about men who are qualified to be deacons or qualified to be elders. We're also going to ask you about men who aren't qualified to be elders and deacons, but you see have the potential to serve in that capacity at some point in the future. I'll tell you why, because we're not coming in here just to look to rubber stamp somebody. That's not our plan at all. I don't plan to do that. Jim doesn't either. But what we do want to know is maybe you see somebody out here and you say, well, they could be a deacon one day. We want to know their name. You say, well, they got this problem, they got this problem, they got this weakness. Well, we want to know that too. We want to know that too. And I'll give you the reason for that in just a moment. But that's what you can expect. But I want you to know that there are plans that have been established. And we want to make sure that those plans come to fruition. You know, somebody said, I don't know who said this, but it's stuck in my mind since I heard it. They said, if we plan to do nothing, or we do nothing after we plan, the result is the same. Nothing happens. You know, there's a saying in architects, if you don't set a timeline, nothing gets built. We're in a hurry to get started, but we're not in a hurry to get done. We're not in a hurry to get done. We do not want to rush this. I'm going to show you some biblical principles, I believe, that guide and govern that here in a few minutes. But I'll tell you, we've got to make plans. We've got to work the plan. We can't just make plans. We've got to take action. At some point, somebody will get ordained. At some point. I don't know when that day will be. We may go through this entire process and nobody gets ordained. And we may say, well, why the show? Why go through it? I'll tell you why. Because we're going to do it God's way. And if we do it God's way and nobody gets ordained, then nobody gets ordained. And I don't, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just telling you, when we do things God's way, it's the right way of doing things regardless of the result. But we're going to do it God's way. And God does have a way for doing this. And maybe you just thought at, at some point, well, I wonder who come up with this idea. I wonder why they do things this way. Well, I want to show you that this morning, but I also want to give you some things to think about. 
I want to go over to Genesis for just a moment. Genesis chapter 14. You might remember the time when Abraham and Lot were together. And, and, uh, and Lot and his people, they got taken captive. And so Abraham makes a decision. They're going to go rescue Lot uh, from this captivity. And the Bible says that when Abram heard that his brother, that's Lot, it was his nephew, but they use the word brother, kin, kinsman, was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. What I want to look at here is this right here. He armed his trained servants. You know what it doesn't say? He trained his armed servants. That's not what it says. He said, what's the difference? Now, I'm not trying to be overly critical this morning, okay? That's not my purpose here. I, I, have, I have failed in this area before in my work years ago. And I'll tell you, it's, it's bothered me. It's bothered me greatly. But there have been times when we've come in, when you've had people come in, and what they've done is they've armed somebody because they met a list of qualifications. Those things are important. We're going to talk about all those things. But even though the person had the, the character and the qualities, you might say, what we read in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus 1, they may have had no idea how to do the work of an elder or deacon. And so what we essentially do is we arm them and then we train them. And it's backwards. And I want you to think about the wisdom that we see here and what Abraham did. He didn't go train his armed servants. He had servants that were trained. These men had obviously not been to war in a long time, but when the war came, they were ready to fight. And what we don't need to do is arm men with authority when they have no understanding of the work. We don't want to ever do that. I'll tell you essentially what happens when you do that. Lots of mistakes are made. And I'll tell you, you can talk to your elders today. You can talk to me and Sean about our evangelistic work for that matter. Mistakes are made at times. But sometimes when men have no training and you arm them, big mistakes are made. Catastrophic mistakes are made. And so I want you to think about this in light of what I said a few moments ago. Maybe there's somebody that you see that you say, well, they're too young or their kids are too young or, or whatever. You say, maybe way off out in the future we can see these men serving in that capacity. Well, what are we going to do? Are we going to sit around and wait and just see if they are qualified in 10 years? Are we going to look at their weaknesses and their strengths now and hone those things, work with them on those weaknesses, and train them so when the, the time comes, they're ready? So we don't just need to sit and watch and wait and go, well, maybe one day they'll be an elder. Maybe one day they'll be a deacon. No, let's be proactive. Let's train them. And then when the time comes, we'll arm them with the authority to do their work. That's the wisdom that we see here in what Abraham did and how he operated. And I'll tell you what these men did. They had great success. They had success because they were ready for the battle. 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. Elisha was a great, powerful prophet. Great, powerful prophet. Did some magnificent things for the Lord in the, in the kingdom and as he was getting closer to death, we're reading about him and King Joash here. 
Uh, I want you to know before we read this that the kingdom relied on Elisha as a means of leading God's people. Their safety had long been resting in Elisha's hands. And so now that Elisha is close to death, you can imagine the unrest that that caused within the king. And that's what we're reading about here. It says, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Now, you probably read that, like, first time I read that, I thought, what in the world? <laughs> what a strange thing to say. But it's really not. Think about what he's saying. He is looking at Elisha dying and thinking, we're going to be destroyed when he dies. This man has kept us safe. This man we've relied on. And what he's doing is he's saying, Elisha, I am concerned about our army. I'm concerned about our country. And so Elijah says this, take a bow and some arrows. And he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrows, the arrow rather of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you've destroyed them. Now, Yes, this is strange. It's very strange. But here's what's essentially happening. He is basically living out a prophecy. That's what he's doing. That's what Elisha's showing him. Elisha, uh, uh, yes, Joash is concerned about the state of Israel. So Elisha is telling him, look, you're going to gain victory. You're going to win this battle. You see what just happened? That's what's going to happen. You're going to win. You're going to destroy them. But then he says this. Take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck it three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. You know, first time I read this, I thought, that's not fair. I mean, he didn't say shoot five or six times. He just said, shoot the ground. So why is he mad at this guy? I mean, we might look at this and say, well, your instructions were, you know, not clear. So, you know, here, I'll pull the other out. But, but that wasn't going to happen. I'll tell you why he was mad at him. Why'd you stop? Why'd you stop shooting? You still had arrows in your quiver. I'll tell you why he quit shooting. Because he's like a lot of us sometimes. We say, well, I didn't give everything I got, but at least I did something. At least I did something. Why didn't he give everything he got? If there was more arrows in the quiver, why not pull them? Why not shoot them? Why not use them? You're, you're really going to sit here and cry? over Elisha's face and say, I'm so worried about the future visual. But now he says, okay, here's your chance. And he goes, okay, done. And that wasn't good enough. You still had more arrows. I'm going to tell you, me and Jim, when we come in here, we're looking for arrows. Because you got some arrows in here. I guarantee you. They'll, they'll come to the surface. At some point, they'll come to the surface. There's weapons of war in here. And why not shoot them? Why not use them? If we're really concerned about the future of the church, pull the arrows out and shoot them, use them. Because here's what he told him. 
Because you struck three times, you're going to win three times. But here's the problem. If you'd have shot five or six, you would have utterly destroyed your enemies. You know what happened? They won those three battles. And then Syria was a plague to them over and over. You know why? Because of this one moment in this one man's life when he had a chance as a leader to do the right thing and he didn't, didn't do enough. I'd say that's pretty serious, wouldn't you? Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Now, this is somewhat of a grim statement, but here's essentially what he's saying. One of these days, you're going to die. And when you do, you can't do anything. Once you're in the grave, there's no activity, there's no energy, there's no giving, there's no nothing. There's no speaking of knowledge, there's no giving of wisdom, you're going to die, and your impact is over. So what's his point? We say make hay while the sun shines. That's what he's saying. While you're alive, you do everything, and you do it with all your might. You expend every resource. You seek to excel. You search every corner. You equip every man and woman for the service of God's kingdom. Because your time is coming to an end. And I'll tell you, that's true of every one of us. We only have a small time on this earth to make an impact in God's kingdom. And if we're just sitting around watching and waiting, hoping that someone else will do it, I'm going to tell you, we are foolish. That's what we are. We are foolish. We have time right now. We've got life in us. We've got energy. And I'll tell you what happens. Essentially, every time someone tries to step out and do something, every time there's a plan that's made, here comes the cold water committee. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I want you to understand, what we're setting out to do is not because anything's broken. That's, that's not at all what's going on. But that's our attitude. Well, why would we change anything if everything is working? I think we've talked about that a little bit and maybe established some reasons why. But I think sometimes people say, well, when things change, and that's what we're worried about, isn't it? Change. In Ecclesiastes 10 and 18, it says, Because of laziness, the building decays, and through idleness of hands, the house leaks. It ain't because it's broken. It's not about fixing a house, it's collapsing. It's about this, inspection and maintenance. That's what it is. And I'll tell you something that I learned working with Dad, working in, in remodeling and, and in renovating. One of the things I've learned is if you neglect the little things, they will eventually become big things. And the other thing is if you don't maintenance things when they need it, pretty soon those things multiply until there's so many things that you just become overwhelmed. You just look at it and go, it's just beyond repair. And I've seen that in churches. There were little things, little things that came up and somebody said, ah, that's a little thing. We don't need to worry about that. Then there's another little thing and another little thing. Well, pretty soon there's a bunch of little things that turn into big things and there was a big mess and you couldn't clean it up. How'd that happen? He tells us how that happens, by doing nothing. That's why houses collapse. That's why they fall apart. You know why? Because somebody, when they saw that it was starting to rot on the fascias, when they saw that there was things starting to creep up around the foundation, they ignored it. They just looked at it and said, well, it hadn't fallen down yet. We'll just 
Someday I'll get to that. And I'll remind you, someday is not on the calendar, but your days are numbered. And so we can't bank on that someday we'll fix something. If something needs to be maintenanced, let's do it right now. And I want you to think back to Israel. When was the best time for them to equip leaders? When they were serving Baal? I don't know who didn't equip the next generation. I don't know if it was Joshua. I don't know if it was the elders. That he, but somebody didn't equip leadership. Brethren, we have to be looking now. Inspecting now. Maintaining now. First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 1 says, Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone, my son, my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. You know what David wanted to do? He wanted to build a house for God. And God said, No, you are not going to build my house. You have blood on your hands. You're a man of blood. You're not going to build my house. Your son is going to build my house. You know what David didn't do? He didn't sit and cry about it and say, well, if I'm not going to get to build the house, then I'm just not going to do anything. You know what he said? I'm going to get busy doing what I can do to help my son. Because this is not a house for man. This house is for the Lord. And I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about this congregation. This is not your house. It's not my house. This is the Lord's house. And I tell you, the moment we realize that, our selfish motives, they go by the wayside. And sometimes that's our problem. We get selfish. We don't want change to happen. Why? Because it may be uncomfortable for us. It may be difficult for us. It's not about you. This is about the Lord's house. I had a deacon tell me one night, Concerning a problem that looked like is on the horizon, he said, well, I'm glad that's not my problem. He said, that's your generation's problem. Because he said, that probably won't happen for 20 years, and I'll be dead by then. I'll tell you, it was his problem. It was his problem. And if you don't think what you're doing today doesn't impact the future, I'm telling you, your eyes are closed. What David did was prepared for the building of God's house. He didn't get to build it. He never got to see it built. But he did what he could to prepare the next generation. To make it easier on the next generation. It's not about what you get to experience. And I'll tell you, I, I would imagine being David, that would probably be hard. Knowing that you're doing all this work and you're never going to get to see it. But it's not about what you get to experience. Again, this is for the Lord. Our standard is not, well, is the congregation happy? I'm not saying that's not important, but that's not the standard. What we need to be doing, the question we need to be asking is, if the Lord came in here and he did an inspection, would he be satisfied with our congregation? Would he be happy about the state of his house? Notice what it says in 1 Chronicles 22. In verse 5, now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced in the house to be built for the Lord. Listen, must be exceedingly magnificent. Is that our standard? Or are we just happy to have things the way they've always been and happy to have things the way they are? I'll tell you, that right there 
that understands whose house it is. This is for the Lord. It's got to be the best it can be. We've got to do everything we can to make sure that it's fitting for God. I'll tell you, you may not think this is true, but your involvement in this process, every person in here, your involvement is extremely important. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about this, Lord willing, more in November as we get into the work of deacons. And uh, I'm going to present this as though they were deacons. We can talk about that. We can study about that at a later time. Uh, but I do want you to know that I believe there's a model here. There's wisdom here that we need to, to really look at and follow after. And one of the things that we see is that some people were being neglected in the daily ministration. So there were widows there. They felt like some widows were being neglected. The apostles did not have time to stop doing what they were doing to take care of that work. They cared about that work, but they had work they were doing. And so what they did was they looked out and they looked at the multitude of disciples and they said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They didn't say, look, serving tables is beneath us. That's not what they said. They didn't say serving tables is not important. They said somebody needs to do this work. But we have a job and we can't leave what we're doing to do what needs to be done. So you look out among you. You seek out from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And I'll tell you why we want to meet with every single person in this congregation. Because you know your people. You know your people. You know, both Garland and David said to me the other day, you and Jim probably know our congregation best out of the guys that are evangelists, other than Sean, obviously. That's true. That's, I think that's true. Me and Jim probably know y'all better than most. But I tell you, that's not good enough. Because I don't interact with y'all on a daily basis. I'm not around you all the time. You know your people. And it's not going to do me any good to come in here and say, well, this is who I think. Let's just appoint them. Let's rubber stamp them. You know, Bond Hog gets an acre and I get that. Maybe, maybe we make the right choice. Maybe we don't. Maybe there's things you're concerned about we don't know about. You know your people. And I'll tell you, the other deal is this. These people, when they looked out and they made the choice, they're going to choose someone they trust. And that's very important. Because I'll tell you, if we came in here and we just made a, a, a gut decision on who we thought and we made the choice and you wouldn't follow them, we did you no good. We did the congregation no good. We need your input. We need you to be candid. We need you to tell us everything about that person. Your opinion, your view, your perspective matters. And I'll tell you, we're also going to meet with the elders. And we hope to meet them just like we're meeting with everybody else in the congregation. Because I'll tell you, their view matters. They have the responsibility of overseeing the flock and because they have the responsibility of overseeing the flock, they have a different perspective than you as members do. They may know things that you don't know about because of intimate, close encounters that they may have had with some of the sheep. And it's supposed to be that way. But they have a different view. And so they're going to be included in this process. And you may think, well, why are y'all being included in this process? And so I want to go through that because I know we've seen this done. I know we've seen other guys come in. I know we've seen evangelists do the ordaining and the training and all that. Why are we doing that? 
I think that's important we understand that. I thought the work of an evangelist when I was a kid was they go out and hold meetings and they eat too much. I do both of those things. Obviously, eat too much is not part of my work. It just happens to be something that happens. I'll tell you, that's, that's a part of our work. We go out, we preach meetings, we preach the gospel, but that's not the entirety of an evangelist's work. I heard somebody give a sermon one time about evangelists, what their work was. You know what his sermon was? They preached the gospel and they were friends with the apostles. That was the lesson. Bizarre lesson. What is the work of an evangelist? Well, it's greater in scope than just a gospel preacher. Watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, of thy service. There is a work that evangelists are appointed and ordained to do. Part of that work is to do what? Well, if you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, what you're going to see is all of the qualifications of elders and deacons. Why did Paul give those qualifications to Timothy? Because Timothy was an evangelist. Why did he write them to Titus? Because Titus was an evangelist. Why? Because it was their job to utilize those qualifications to appoint elders and deacons. It was part of their work. And here's what he says after he concludes giving those Instructions. He says, I, if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself, Timothy, as an evangelist in the house of God. It's part of your work. And I'm writing these things so you'll know how to do your work and you know how to conduct yourself. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. We're going to talk about this more in just a moment. This is, it doesn't mean lay hands on in violence. He's talking about laying hands on as putting hands on someone to appoint them or ordain them to an office. For this reason, Titus chapter 1 and 5, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. So what was Titus's job as an evangelist? To appoint elders in every city. Now, brethren, we hadn't done that. We hadn't done that. I wish I could stand up here and say every single church has elders. They don't. Sometimes it's because we don't have men that are qualified. Sometimes that's the reason. Sometimes it's just people are stubborn and they don't want change. But that was what he was ordained to do. That was what he was appointed to do. That was his work. Go appoint elders in every city. You go and you set in order the things that are lacking. And I'll tell you, when a church doesn't have leadership, it's lacking. It is lacking. I don't care if you feel like things are running smoothly. It's lacking. It needs elders because that's God's design. I want you to know that we take this very seriously. And I, I told you earlier we're in a hurry to get started, but we're not in a hurry to get done. And I want to tell you why we're not in a hurry to get done. Because we have wisdom here that's given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. There's a, logic, there's a logical reason why we shouldn't just lay hands on someone quickly or hastily. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. What's he mean? He means this. Sometimes people are an open book. You can see their character, you can see their weaknesses, you can see their strengths, you know everything about them. And some men are not that way. Some men are really good at hiding their sin. 
And after a while, when you get to investigating, doing a little bit of digging around, those sins come out. Yep, that's hard, isn't it? But that's reality. And that's why we don't want to rush this. We want to do it right. We want to do it right. We want to take our time. We want to dig. We want to investigate. We want to make sure that whatever decisions your elders decide to make, that they're making the right one. I trust that they will. And I want to ask you to trust the process. Trust the process. Because we're going to ensure that once we look through these, we're not going to go, well, you know, 8 out of 10, that's pretty good. <laughs> no, don't work that way. We're not going to cut corners on this. It's not going to work that way. We're going to take our time. We're going to make sure there's not something we've overlooked. I'll tell you, I, I wouldn't start this work this week. I want Jim here. And I'll tell you why. My discernment is not perfect. It's not. It's far from perfect. And I think there's a reason the Lord sent men out in pairs. He sent them out in twos. And when I'm doing these works, I'll tell you, the guy I'm with, sometimes he misses things and I pick up on it and I tell him about it. Sometimes I miss things and he picks up on it and he tells me about it. Sometimes I'm not picking up something about a person and they say, hey, have you noticed this? I, I didn't notice that. And I start watching. I notice it. There's safety in that. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should... Set in order the things that are lacking and appoint or ordain elders in every city. I know sometimes this idea of appointing or ordaining, it's foreign to us. We don't see it happen very much, and so it might make us uncomfortable. But there's a reason why these men are appointed to leadership. They're given a title. They're given authority to do the work. There's a reason for that. They need that authority. They do. They need the authority to do their work. I've seen men just try to grasp authority and do the work of an elder when he wasn't qualified. He destroyed the church. Seen it over and over. We don't need that. And somebody says, well, you can't do this today. That was only done because in those days they had divine direction. They had miraculous instruction through the Holy Spirit. So do we, brethren, in God's holy word. Those things were written down. And we can look at it and we can understand it and we can do it God's way. Let's not make excuses to not do what God said to do. God wants us to ordain elders and deacons. That's what he wants. So I just want to remind you that in this process there is accountability. The elders are accountable to you and they're accountable to us. You are accountable to them and you're accountable to us. We are accountable to you and we are accountable to the elders and I'll tell you, every one of us are accountable to the Word of God. And when we do this process this way and everybody works together and everybody is involved, I'll tell you, there's safety in that process. The Bible teaches us this very thing. Our purpose for coming is, is, is primarily is to assess the current state. We want to know where we're at on this. And our goal is to identify opportunities. That's really our goal here. We want to see what opportunities there are for men to serve in the capacity of elder or deacon. Do you have men qualified? Do you have men that aren't qualified but could be qualified with some training and some changes? And I want to be absolutely open about what you 
need to expect. We're, we're going to ask you to put forth some names, okay? That's what we're going to do. And we're going to do that unprompted. We're not going to come to your house and say, what do you think about this guy? What do you think about this guy? I'm not going to mention any guy. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to put any person in your mind. The cream rises to the top, okay? We, we're just going to ask you, who do you think is qualified to be an elder? You may say, well, I don't know. I don't know anybody. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but I'm not going to say, well, what about this guy? We're not going to do that. We're going to let this play out and be fair. Y'all are going to put them forward. Y'all put the names forward. We're just going to collect the information. And, and I want you to know, we're going to keep records. We're going to keep records. The Bible says, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. This is not gossip hour, okay? That's not what this is for. We're going to ask you to be critical. And I know we shy away from that. We're taught not to do that in Scripture. But for this specific purpose in identifying whether men are qualified or not, we've got to be critical. It's imperative that you be critical. But this is not gossip hour. We do not want to come to your house and you say, well, you know, this old guy, he does this, but he's not, he's, he, you know, he's not even on the spectrum as far as elder. De- well, then why are you talking about him? This is not gossip hour, okay? This is not the time to rail on the church. That's not what this is about. We're going to ask you to be critical about men who may be able to serve in the capacity of elder or deacon. Listen, we're going to ask you to be critical about their wives as well. You know why? Because the Bible mentions that in regard to elders and deacons. It's important. Important information. But what we're not going to do is take these records back to the elders and say, well, here, this is what this person said. This is what this person said. Here's what this person said. That is not our purpose. We're going to keep those records. We're going to write your name down and write down what you said so we can remember. We're not going to share that information with the elders. What we are going to share with them is what you said without telling them who said it. Because that information is important. They need to know the information. But I'm just telling you, we take this seriously too. We understand this. We get this. We understand the seriousness of what spreading and whispering does. That it destroys relationships. Brethren, we're coming in here to help build the church up, not tear it down. And I'm telling you this because I'm making a commitment to you. We're not going to go gossip. We're not going to go telling. We're not going to do that. We want you to trust us because we need you to trust us because we need you to say what you need to say because the only way we're going to make the best decisions is if we have the best information. We need you to be candid. The Bible says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. The Bible says, for by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war in the multitude of counselors. There is safety. There we go. Okay, so I want to finish up by saying a couple things. Um, there's, there's parts of this process that can be very uncomfortable. And, and to me... <laughs> Just speaking from my experience, the most uncomfortable part for me is to take the information we collect back to the person it was said about. And, and what I'm telling you is if, if you may be on the, on the radar for elder or deacon and people have mentioned some things that you need to tighten up on, we're going to come to your house. Or the elders will come to your house. One of us will come to your house.
and visit with you about that. And, and I want you to know why. It's because we love you and we love the church and because you have the potential to serve in that capacity to the glory of God. That's why. If you're not on that radar and somebody may say negative things about you, we're not going to come to your house and say, you know, all these negative things were said about you. But understand something. We are going to come back and give you some feedback on what was said about you. And I want to ask you, be humble. Be humble. Don't get angry. Don't get mad at what your brethren might think of you. Because we're really not the best judge of our own character. I know we all think we are. We think we know ourselves better than everybody knows us. And to some extent, that's true. You you're the only person that knows what's going on in here and here besides God, right? These people in here don't know what's going on in here and in here. But I'll tell you, there's things going on out here that you can't see. You can't see it. Are we really that self-aware? Listen to what, what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea. He says, because you say... I am rich and become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see as many as I love. Listen, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Why did Jesus tell them this? I'll tell you why, because they didn't know it. They had a view of themselves that wasn't reality. And I'll tell you, that's a lot of us. We think we know ourselves. How well do you know yourself? Let me ask you a question. Does your breath stink? You might think, what kind of question is that? Your mouth is this far from your nose. And you have to have somebody else tell you if your breath stinks. That's how self-aware we are. Look, we may think we're one way. But there's an entire different version of us that exists within the minds of all the people that know and love us. And their perception is important for us if we want to grow in the faith. And so their feedback's important. And take it with humility. Maybe they're wrong. Maybe you're right. Consider what they say at least. Just consider it. Just think about it. And I'll tell you, if we didn't think it was important, we wouldn't even bother with it. But it is important. There's a title, there's an office, there's authority. But understand something. Being an elder and a deacon is not glamorous, it's work. That's what it is, it's work, it's responsibility. It's service, and that's what Jesus said. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. If we go through this process and you feel like you were overlooked, do not get discouraged. That usually happens for a reason. I'll tell you, I've seen people leave the church because they were not ordained. And every time they do, I say, we made the right decision. I'm just being honest. If people leave the church because they were overlooked for a title, we made the right decision. We dodged a bullet because there's a pride thing there that caused them to leave. Don't get discouraged if you're overlooked. I want to I tell you something. There was a time in Paul's life when Paul was not qualified to be an apostle. He wasn't even qualified to be a Christian. But he got there. 
There was a time when Peter was not qualified to serve in the capacity of an elder. But he got there. There was a time when Garland Dukes and David Zebok weren't qualified to be deacons, but they're elders now. Just because you're not qualified this time doesn't mean you can't become qualified. And if you really desire that work, desire the work, don't desire the office. Desire the work. You need the office. You need the title. You need the authority to do your work. But that should be your desire is the work. And if you're disappointed that you didn't get that, go talk to your elders and ask them how desirable that the work can be. Because it's not always fun and games. It's not fun and games. It's hard. But we do it because it's the Lord's house. And because God is the one that gives us the skill, the talent, the ability to do those things. And we do it out of service, not out of selfish ambition. I want to leave you with a passage from Ezekiel 34 today. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 7. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do not feed themselves that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and you clothe you with wool. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them, and they were scattered. Because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth. And none did search or seek after them. Yea, uh, therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. You need to thank God every day that you have shepherds. And that they're not like these men. Because I tell you. We've seen what happens when there's no shepherds. But I'll tell you what's worse than having no shepherds. Having wicked shepherds. That's worse. Men who use their authority to abuse, to violate, to oppress, and to indulge for their own pleasure because they're power hungry and prideful and they abuse their position. That's a terrible thing. And friends, that's why we want to take our time. We don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to get it wrong. We need good, godly, humble men to serve the church of the Lord. And I want to say again, we hope that every one of you will be willing to take your time to be part of this process because it is so important. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.